And the Oscar goes to, by a nose, Nicole Kidman. Hi, Justin. Oh, hey, Sam. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little sleepy. I woke up to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the, it's the best way to wake up. Honestly, talking about this particular movie on a Sunday morning feels very apt. Um, I guess I should say welcome to the Kid Manifesto because I realize that I haven't been using the name of this podcast very often. So welcome. Um, would you introduce yourself and the movie that we're about to talk about? Of course. Um, I'm Justin Kirkland. Um, I'm an Aries. Um, that's not relevant at all. Um, but we are going to talk about Days of Thunder, um, which, like you said, is the perfect movie to discuss on a Sunday because it is kind of like the Sabbath of Nicole Kidman movies. Um, and stars Tom Cruise, um, Robert Duvall, unfortunately, Randy Quaid, who is billed above Nicole Kidman, and of course, Nicole Kidman. And it um, centers on Tom Cruise being a NASCAR driver, stock car racer. I don't want to get um, too into the particulars. And his name is Cole Trickle. And it's about his, um, his racing career. So, hell yeah. Um, why did you why did you choose this movie because you like you requested it it was not something that I assigned to you so I have a weird background that I've been reconciling with um my modern day life in that I was born a child of redneck culture um so I was forced to love this movie from a young age, not because of Nicole Kidman, but because of a love of NASCAR, stock car racing, and, um, you know, just getting, getting the let out. What? Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, no, it's, it's a movie that my dad and I watched. Um, I remember watching it at least a dozen times growing up. Um, so for there to be this strange, strange overlap, um, I definitely wanted this movie above everything else. Um, this is kind of a tangent, but your dad is an actual icon and a legend. And, um, if he had a Twitter, he would for sure, he would for sure be verified because he is prolific. He is messy. Um, (laughs) he is, he's a wonderful, a wonderful guy, but he's got this gigantic beard that like, goes down like halfway down his chest he's like always in some form of like real tree camouflage it's it's a lot but also fun fact about him he knows um all of the words to every song in burlesque and most of the choreography which he performs from a recliner (laughs) yeah what did you guys were you guys lip syncing to something recently on twitter Yes, um, Sam Smith, um, Too Good at Goodbyes, um, he insisted that we did it. It was not even my idea, so that's what I deal with. Oh, I love it. Um, (laughs) how many times would you say that you've seen this movie? Um, honestly, probably 20. Okay, great, great. I think that's gonna come into play here because I've only seen this movie twice and both times were this year, and, um... 
you know, it's not my favorite. I'll get it out of the way right now. <laughs> uh, but it did go by quickly. I will say that for the movie. I am going to change your mind today. Um, because I think, um, are we allowed to say curse words or is that like something I should avoid? Cause I can, it's, it's a Sunday. Oh, no, I can keep can, it holy. <laughs> you can definitely swear. Um, I realized that both Tom and I said fuck like seven times on the first episode and I was like, well, I guess I have to make this explicit now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I can't even remember what, um. I was about to say. You were really but... excited about changing my mind on this movie. Oh, I'm I'm going to change your mind on this movie because I think it's kind of like college. I was an English major. So, like, everybody knows that the foundation of a good English major is to take something that you may not enjoy and just bullshit your way through the entire thing. So, I am going to bring you to a place where you realize that... Days of Thunder is ultimately the crux of gay camp and redneck camp right in the middle. So it's it's gonna be great. I can't I can't wait. I do I do love to be convinced. Um and there have been multiple times on this podcast that I've talked through a movie and then halfway through I realized that I really liked it. I think it happened with Bewitched and I think it happened with Cold Mountain. So I, I guess stranger things have happened. Well, let's just let's just get right into it. Um, I already have shit to say about the credits, and I think you do too. So let's just let's dive right in. Yeah, I mean it's it's a complicated opening sequence, and I can understand how you might flip it on. By the way, if for some reason, um, after listening to this, or you know, you see the title and you've gotten this far and you haven't quit yet, it is free on Amazon. So this isn't something that you have to invest in. This is just something you can like dive into and be like, I don't know, like I've had three glasses of wine, so I'm oh, going to give this man, NASCAR movie I, a chance. I like use the TV app or whatever on the Apple TV because it tells you like most places where things are. Amazon is like the exception. So I definitely rented this movie like a chump. Oh no. I honestly, you know, even with the opening credits, which we'll get to in just a second, I'll refund you because that's how much I love Amazon has, like, a very surprising selection of Nicole Kidman movies, like, down to the fact that they have, um, like, cult classic BMX bandits, and they also have Bush Christmas, which is, like, her first work ever and, like, wasn't even released in the U.S. That's incredible. It's truly insane. Also, please don't watch Bush Christmas because it's so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I think, ultimately, this one ranks pretty high and pretty low for me at the same time so i'm i might be into it but was it written by tom cruise uh no but are you about to tell me that this movie was because that's this movie was co-written by um tom cruise and a nice man named robert town um who also wrote um the first two mission impossible films and a movie called shampoo Oh, and he also wrote Chinatown, so he's not, like, completely bad. No, um, um, honestly, that list got better the further you got into, <laughs> into Exactly. Um, but clearly his best feature is the one he um, developed with Tom Cruise, which is Days of Thunder. Unfortunately, um, as the credits start, um, Nicole Kidman is fourth build, which I don't know if they were, like, not forecasting the future. Clearly not, because John C. Riley was, like, sixth build. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's 
it's a messy opening sequence and there's like five confederate flags like boom 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 at the very beginning um which is a journey but i will at least make the caveat that it's like right at the beginning and then there's none that come after that so there really isn't i was kind of like on high alert when i saw them because you are treated to like not just the traditional one but you're treated to some some lovely variants on the confederate flag like screwed across like audience members and different cars and i was like oh this is what i'm in for but then you actually really don't see a single one for the rest of the movie I mean, just to speak very briefly, I'm never going to apologize for the NASCAR culture use of the Confederate flag, but I will do a very ashamed hat tip to how creative they can get with it. Because, you know, if you're going to be racist, no, you're not. You're just, God love them for the creativity. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, I think you get a pretty good picture though. That's one thing I think the movie does really well is it captures this like, absolute absurd campiness of nascar culture um even if some of that creativity is funneled into repurposing confederate flags but you know there's there's a lot more other movie to talk about there is we get treated to a nice um kind of like expository scene on the farm where we are introduced to robert duvall's character and, like, we get a, so much background information in this one scene. Have you, this is a tangent, have you seen the movie um, uh, Nebraska? Yes. Okay, there's this scene at the beginning where the, like, two brothers are in the garage, and it's just, like, the most exposition I've ever seen in a movie where, like, literally <laughs> one of the brothers is like, you remember our dad who died last year? Like, you remember how he wanted us to do this? Like, that's how I felt about this scene, where it was just, like... <laughs> You remember last year, your driver that died? It was mysterious. They didn't investigate it. You remember, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't want to hop around too much, but we need to talk about this driver that died at least four times during this. Because, like, their use of him is a plot device that absolutely makes no sense when you get to the end of the movie is astonishing to me. Yeah, it's insane. It's also, like, not only is it just in the back of our minds, but characters are actively bringing it up in different contexts. (laughs) And every time they do, it's a completely different set of information as far as, like, was the car faulty? Like, was he pressured into doing something? Was it just his poor driving? Is anyone even really sad? Like, every time it's (laughs) different. Most importantly is that it all kicks off with Robert Duvall on a tractor. And this is this is a secret that I'm going to tell you and you alone. And then we're going to put it on the podcast and then everyone's going to know it. I'm deeply sexually attracted to Robert Duvall. Okay. You know, people have made a bunch of surprising uh, sexual confessions on this podcast. Um, <laughs> this is merely one of them. And most of the time I don't agree. This is another instance where I can't really co-sign on it, but I am honored that you would make such a bold confession on the airwaves. There, I mean, there's just something. And ultimately I think that the movie, if we're talking about like billing, it should have gone Robert Duvall, Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise, comma, I guess, Randy Quaid. Okay. That's extremely rude. Um, because you forgot the most important character in this movie. John C. Riley. 
No, you forgot that Margot Martindale is in this movie. Wait, what? Yeah, this is um okay, I'm gonna say I'm gonna go on a bit of a rant. This is Margot Martindale's first cinematic appearance. And she plays like the woman who sits in that like tall chair. You know how there's like a like a person that like watches the pit or whatever? Yes. Yeah, that's her. Shut up. Yeah, and she just appears in like almost like a Carol coat at the beginning. Um, because, but she's just sitting up there. But it's also one of, I think, like four movies that she's been in with Nicole Kidman. So I have several questions for you about that. This is this is incredible. This is something that I completely missed entirely. Esteemed yeah, character actress Margot Martindale. In she's the- in this. She's in Practical Magic. She's one of the like town's women, or she works in Sandra Bullock's store. She's in The Human Stain, and she's in The Hours because she's in um, the Julianne Moore portion. That is that is bonkers. And I just looked it up. She played Donna. I should have known. Yeah. So my question to you is, do you think that they're friends, first and foremost? Or do you think that they're friendly or neither? Here's the thing. And, you know, I don't want to come on the Kid Manifesto and ever have anything negative to say about Nicole Kidman. But I think that as a service and also as an acting project, Margot Martindale is friends with everyone. Like you, me, it's all just like work for like another role. Um, So I think that Nicole probably thinks they're friends. I think that for Margot it's method, but I think that it's method for every friendship she has because she's constantly esteemed character actress, Margot Martindale. Do you think, um, do you think they're on a first name basis? Do you think oh, like, absolutely. They talk? Okay, great, great, great. A hundred percent. Do you think that they, like, do you think that Nicole is, like, conscious of the fact that they've worked together so many times? Or do you think it's kind of a situation where she, like, reintroduces herself each time? Oh, she absolutely reintroduces herself each time. And ironically, I, I think that Margot also reintroduces herself each time, but as a different character. I was going to ask you if you think that Nicole Kidman has seen any episodes of The Americans, but, like, I already know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's never. Oh, my God. Um, so I feel like, especially because we've hung out before, and we know that <laughs> together our conversations go on, like, whichever direction. So to get us back on track... <laughs> um, Are you laughing because race- you made, like, a racetrack pod? Oh. Is that why? Yeah, I did. Um, so, an- another little fun note about this movie. The music was done by Hans Zimmer. I saw that. So, take that into consideration. So, as we're experiencing all this Hans Zimmer music, um, Robert Duvall is... I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure this movie won a single Oscar, and it was for sound. So, he must have been somehow related to that. I could have yeah. also just made that up. <laughs> no, it, that's totally true. Um, okay. It is it's Oscar-winning Days of Thunder. Um, but essentially, Robert Duvall does leave his tractor and the farm, presumably running. So the tractor's still like 26 years, 27 years later, just, you know, somewhere in a field, like running out of gas. Um, but he returns back to NASCAR to like start um, this racing team and build a car, which is when... Cole Trickle, a.k.a. Tom Cruise, comes along um, to test out driving this car for the team and being the driver. He has 
never raced a car before. So Robert Duvall, who is all like, I don't know, and I'm, I'm, and he can't run the car, um, essentially lets him run it. And then they become this like super team that just like starts racing. And it, this has never, ever happened in my memory of NASCAR, but like he just wins Daytona, like right out of the gate. Yeah, he wins immediately. Um, a couple of things about this scene that stood out for me. One, I continually put notes about how I think that Robert Duvall is the Hattori Hanzo of this movie because he, like, fashions the, like, he's, like, the only person that can manufacture this car that's, like, going to win. And he also, like, takes in Tom Cruise as, like, a protege to, like, defeat the enemy. So that's thing one. There's also that scene where they're asking where Tom Cruise is from, and he says, like, he's from Glendale. And then someone's like, so he's nothing, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. <laughs> and then then I start to get examples of, like, reasons why I hate the dialogue in this movie, because it's a lot of, like, I, has, I hesitate to call this movie a boy movie because that seems reductive, but this movie is a boy movie and that we get lines, like, people talking about the cars and saying, like, this bitch is ready to run. And I just, like, I'm so exhausted by, by things like that. Like, I just don't, I don't know. That This whole movie is, like, um, jokes about, like, women, like, like being hired to touch Tom Cruise's penis and then, like, shit like that. It just doesn't work <laughs> for me. Well, I find ways to repurpose some of that dialogue. Like, this morning, I woke up and I was like... You know, I really need to be active today. And I, I rewatched Days of Thunder last night because I just wanted to make sure that I was caught up. And I actually used that line. I went to the bathroom. I had my little, like, jogging jacket on. And I stared at myself in the mirror for a minute. And I went, this bitch is ready to run. And <laughs> <laughs> then I went out and ran. So, in essence, I'm reclaiming Days of Thunder for myself. Um, but you were talking about, you were talking about the dialogue and you were talking about Robert Duvall's character. Um, and that scene at the racetrack is kind of what kicks off what I think in some circles is known as the Tom Cruise picture. Um, oh, I was, I actually was like ready to talk about this. Are you talking about like the Roger Ebert thing? Yes. Oh, go for it. So you see the same thing in The Color of Money um, and Top Gun and Cocktail. And it's essentially like nine characters and not all nine have to be there, but like a majority of them have to be. Um, You have like Tom Cruise, who is like young and like green and like ready to do stuff. And then you have his mentor. And what I really liked about this one is typically we get a snippet of Tom Cruise before we get the mentor. But this time, like we kick off with sexual affection, Robert Duvall. Um, And the mentor is like typically like an older guy who's like done whatever needs to be done himself before, or like knows the key to getting it done. Um, Then you get what is called the superior woman. Um, I love, can I just say that I love in the description of the superior woman, it calls out that she's generally taller, but that's probably just, yes. because, like, Tom Cruise is, like, four feet tall. I also made notes while watching last night on every time I felt 
uncomfortable in the height difference between Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Not because a woman can't be taller than a man, but just because, like, I already feel like Nicole Kidman is so strong. So just to have her, like, towering over Tom Cruise, who is supposed to be, like, again, no pun intended, driving this movie forward, um, is just hilarious to me. It's also very funny, too, because I think this is... This is definitely their first on-screen appearance. Yes. I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's their first on-screen appearance because the next one is far and away where it's, like, less noticeable just because of the way that they shot it. And then finally we get Eyes Wide Shut, which is, like, again, aggressively concerned with, like, hiding Tom Cruise's height difference. So (laughs) the cinematography gets, like, more and more conscious of it. But here we just, like, we don't know any better. And it's just really going for it. Um... (laughs) With the continuation of the Tom Cruise picture, you have the craft, which is, um, in this case, racing, um, that Tom Cruise must become good at. The arena, which, as we all know, the main arena is Daytona. Um, The Arcana, um, which is the specialized knowledge and lore that comes along with the movie and everything that it's about. So, like, all the way down to the Confederate flags. Um, essentially his journey that he has to go on the, what is called the proto villain, um, which is the bad guy at the beginning and then like the real villain, which as somebody from the South, I cannot tell you how important it is that the real, uh, real villain here was sponsored by Hardee's, um, which is in other parts of the world known as Carl Jr. Can I ask you a serious question about this movie and the hundred percent is there who is are there two different people for both of those is there a proto villain and a villain based on this oh list? yeah yeah um rowdy is the proto villain okay but then who's the villain did i just not pay attention oh R- russ wheeler the guy that was sponsored by hardy's okay okay i guess mainly for part of the movie i thought they were the same thing but i guess i'm realizing now that they're not <laughs> i completely understand how that can happen Oh boy. You okay, great. Yep. Nope, that checks out. <laughs> so yeah, we have this we have this big rundown. Um we'll get to we'll get to Russ and my strong feelings about Hardy's later and how ultimately, especially considering the plot of this movie, I'm shocked that Hardy's was the villain considering how much Hardy's and Carl's Jr. objectifies women, but that's neither here nor there. Um so essentially we get started with the film and Tom Cruise um, is pitted against this guy, Rowdy Burns, um, who was patterned after Southern Jesus, Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> and they have um, this back and forth kind of rivalry um, for the first 40 minutes of the movie. Lest, lest we forget that rubbing is racing, Justin. Uh, it's not rubbing is racing, Sam. It's rubbing's racing. Okay, fine. Um. <laughs> This is something that I heard multiple times through this movie, but also, like, multiple times, like, as my dad was backing into a parking spot at Walmart growing up, and he'd, like, <laughs> back a little too far and, like, hit a car. And I'd be like, Dad, you just hit a car. And he would turn around with, like, a dip of skull in his mouth and go, Rubin's racing. And then we would, like, go into Walmart. Um, so Rubin's Raisin became like a mantra for my family Um, so when that came up last night it was absolutely beautiful Um, but Rubin's Raisin is not 
just, you know, like bumping into cars and like drafting. Um, it eventually leads to a gigantic wreck. Actually, it wasn't much of rubbing as much as it was Tom Cruise goes through a giant cloud of smoke, which is very important to remember. Um, because he's being led through the smoke by um, Harry, played by Robert Duvall. And he essentially just T-bones the hell out of Rowdy's car. And they both go flipping and flying and get taken to the hospital, which is when Queen Nicole Kidman, um, known in the movie as Dr. Claire Lewicki, comes into play because she is a neurosurgeon for both of them. Again, it's one of those movies where, like, she doesn't show up until, I'm not kidding, 45 minutes into this movie. Yeah. So I was kind of just like, I mean, I was just sitting on my hands waiting for something <clears> to happen. <throat> um, I also was like, oh, she's doing a horrible American accent. And then I realized, like, oh, no, her last name's Lewicki. Like, they're just making her vaguely Australian, but we just won't talk about it. That's one of my favorite things about all Nicole Kidman roles. And actually... Um, not to get too far off topic, but after the first episode of Big Little Lies, I just had to believe that her character was like vaguely Australian because I think that's one of the most endearing things about Nicole Kidman, that she isn't great at hiding her accent. So I just always have to believe that she's like kind of Australian. You know... That's another thing that I can't co-sign on, and <laughs> I think sometimes it's more successful than others, but here it is interesting because there just actually is, like, no attempt to mask it. Like, I think her last name is is all that Tom Cruise wrote in to just let us know that she's Australian, and we just have to deal with it. Yes. We also glossed over something that's very important because it you're, reinforces... You're talking about the police. Yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent. Like they're drinking in their like tour van or like whatever you would call it, and they get like arrested for having moonshine, and they're all like propped up against the side of the van or whatever. <laughs> and like all of the other men, like I think John C. Riley might be there at this point, but like all the other men are like very convincing and saying that like you know that they they truly believe that they're getting arrested. And then this lady cop. Um, goes to arrest Tom Cruise, and then we find out that it's a sexy lady cop because women can only be in this movie if they're sexy. And um, she, like, I think she actually, like, unzips Tom Cruise's pants because she says, like, he has a weapon. And I just was like, oh, this is such a boy movie. Well, I was... <laughs> Mind you, this was... This did come out in 1990. A lot of things have changed, but I was startled by this scene because a we get tom cruise vpl right. um which i was just like i did i guess i don't remember like picking up on that when i was a kid um which is surprising in its own way but that's a whole other podcast um so yeah they're out and she comes over and like reaches in and like i guess just like gets a hold of what I believe is probably like a production constructed penis and then unzips his pants. And then everybody's still acting like, Oh, this is standard police procedure. And then she undoes her hair from her hat and then just full on makes out with him. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, is she a stripper or like a full on prostitute? 
And what was really, really strange is there's all these other guys that are in the van as well, or the um, the bus with them. But there's also a woman. And she's, like, standing in the back, like, cracking up. And I'm like, girlfriend, what are you doing back there? Like, you're watching this whole scene unfold. And she's like, oh, boys will be boys. Yeah, she's definitely not an ally. Um, we... Like, perhaps even more horrifying than this scene is the scene that we get shown immediately after in the introduction of Nicole Kidman, which is, like, Tom Cruise, because this is a a doctor is a woman, naturally assumes that she is a sex worker also. Um, And he, like, not only does he talk to her as if she's, like, a a hired escort, um, but he, like, grabs her hand and, like, places it on his crotch. And I was just like, this is truly horrifying like even though i know that these two people are about to get legally wed in real life very soon after this movie like this is just such a horrifying scene for me yeah it's like it's a real journey and i believe um what she says is wow that's interesting it's not my specialty and i was kind of hoping for something a little stronger there but you know you don't always get what you want yeah, it's like a little quippy. Honestly, she shouldn't have said anything. She should just have had him arrested. But you know what? It was the nineties. Um, a lot, we, a lot happened in the nineties. Can we just go back to the fact that when Tom Cruise starts racing, you mentioned like the first time he goes, he wins. But like right before that, doesn't he also do a race that he like doesn't even finish? Like, he goes from not being able to finish a race to winning the next To winning race. Daytona. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, Daytona is, for those not um, well-versed in NASCAR, Daytona is the Super Bowl of racing. So, like, if you win the Daytona 500, you don't just, like, go and win the Daytona 500. Like, all the other races are, like practices and playoffs to get to the Daytona 500. Not only does he not only does he just win, but he like wins by like passing someone on the outside, which like I know next to nothing, but I know that that's like you know, it requires significantly more effort because even just on a physics level you're driving much further around someone. And then he like really only kind of wins the explanation is because he has like special tires, which is just like a thing that Robert Duvall tells him to like jazz him up. So he yeah, wins on, on a wish and a prayer, basically. He wins on practical magic. Oh, there you go. That was better. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, here's, here's the thing that I would recommend for any time you're watching anything campy um, and any time you're watching anything that is, like, deeply rooted – in like redneck culture you just kind of got to walk in and be like i'm not gonna believe most of what happens i'm just gonna like embrace it um because i got caught up with that too and i was like you're telling me like he can't finish a race and like the back end of his car is always loose because he doesn't know how to drive it and then the man drives 500 laps in the daytona 500 (laughs) and wins fine cool you know you do you yeah, does it, isn't that the same race that he, I think this is what you just said, but he, like, refuses to take a pit stop. Like, everyone is like, you need to pull over. And he's <laughs> just like, no, I think I, I, think I won't. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, like, that's not how gas works. Like, that's not how cars work. So it's, like I said, you just kind of got to, like, suspend 
belief for a second. Um, there is a like one scene in particular that I legitimately just want to invest like an entire hour talking about. Um, but is if we go, is it the wheelchair race? No, surprisingly not. But I was just about to say that to get to that scene, we cannot skip over the wheelchair race. This is the, like, when I put this movie on the second time, um, because the first time I watched this, it was when I was watching her movies in order. Like, this was the only thing that I remembered about this movie, was that there was, like, a wheelchair race in the hospital. So that's when Rowdy and um, Cole are coming out of the hospital, both with brain damage. Um, And it's after... Cole has forced Nicole Kidman to touch his penis. Um, <laughs> which, when you just put it bluntly like that, it's like, what is happening in this movie? Um, but yeah, it's after that, and they're being wheeled out. People are pushing them, and then they decide that they're essentially going to recreate what happened on the racetrack by trying to get ahead of one another and then slamming each other into the wall. And it all leads up until they get in front of Nicole Kidman because, as we all know, um, nothing comes before racing except for hot ladies. It was it's it's really strange, and I just think it speaks to the absurd tone of this movie and how you've said multiple times, like this is a boy movie. It's like, a total boy movie. The like dialogue, the dialogue that happens right after that like extraordinarily long metaphor about the Japanese ex- inspection. Yes. About how like they're just gonna essentially the point of the metaphor is like they're gonna tie, they're gonna tie like the race car and the team up like bureaucratically for so long that they like won't be able to race or something. And I just like was sitting there the whole time and I was like, oh, this like vaguely racist metaphor is just like the way that they're giving us this piece of information because these characters like can't talk to each other like actual humans i I don't know (laughs) boy movie but i think what makes it even more incredible is that so much of this movie was based off of real life um because that whole scene (laughs) i'm sorry i'm just like remembering specific things from last night that i didn't take close notes on and it's just absurd the whole scene when they get out of the hospital and um, I believe it was the president of NASCAR said that they needed to come to dinner, but they right. were going to drive together and then threw them the keys. That's actually based on a situation that happened with Dale Earnhardt and he got into a feud with another driver and the president of NASCAR made them do the same thing. But then in the movie, they end up going to like a rental car lot and I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to like discuss my salary on a podcast, but I can promise you this. I don't make enough money to go rent a car and then do to the car what those people did. I, I don't either. But here's a counterpoint that I will say from my experience, which is um, at one point I traveled a lot for work and we would all end up with rental cars. And it was very frequently a thing where like, if you were all driving to a dinner, like everyone would just drive their rental car because why not? And like very frequently people thought it was funny just to like constantly rear end each other. So like I can see that <laughs> portion and like 
I'm sure there are people that like race them or whatever, but like it doesn't seem as far out of reach as most of the rest of this movie for me. Like this is perhaps the only like quote unquote relatable moment for me. Sam, sometimes I just wonder what <laughs> what world we operate in because you can't sign off on Nicole Kidman's wavering accent, but you can sign off on like slightly damaging <laughs> mental vehicles. I'm so done with it. I'm you. just saying I, I've lived <laughs> in a world where I've been driving a rental car and we've been at a stoplight and it's just really funny just to like tap the person that also has a rental car or vice versa. And if it happened to me, I would just recognize it as being another person for our company that had a rental car. (laughs) I'm probably fired now, but that's... (laughs) Well, the good thing is, for those of you who haven't seen the movie and for Sam's employer, um, they don't just like simply tap the back of each other's vehicles. They like run down the side of each other's vehicles. Oh, yeah, like, Rubin's racing. I mean, Rubin's racing, but also, like, Rubin isn't going to be covered in the, like, supplemental insurance that you purchase. Um, because this Rubin is, like, insane. And I just want to, I really want the director's cut where the president of NASCAR walks out and see these two cars. They're just absolutely battered. Because you know that he's not going to be like, oh, looks like you guys got this small fender bender on the way here. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. It was like, did you ever play any of the older Grand Theft Autos where, like, if you banged up a car a certain amount, it would always do the same thing, which is the hood would start to wiggle and then it would just fly off the back. Like, they were past that point. Yes, 100%. The next note that I have in here is just the word physical. And I was like, did they play that song? And then I realized that what it actually is, it's the scene where Tom Cruise has, like, a follow-up appointment with Dr. Lewicki and now she it's her turn to sexually assault him, basically. Yes, and this is the scene that I feel like I could take an hour on because I don't know if I was tired. I did also see Lady Bird last night, which was fantastic, but emotionally taxing. Um, oh, I have a Lady, I have a Lady Bird parallel later in the movie, so get ready. Oh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, but we go from, like, her being you know, smitten, but still pretty disgusted with his behavior to like full on make out during this physical. And then they end up in a gigantic bed together. And I don't know if I'm just like very Southern Baptist in my sexual practices, but I've never ended up any like which way, but like right side up in a bed afterwards. I, and then I pray, you know, cause that's what I do. Oh, you mean but, like, because they're like all, they're not like laying side by side like parallel that's the problem you have i mean no i mean i have a lot of problems here but like they go from like a doctor's office to them to this like california king bed like wrapped up in like 86 different sets of sheets there's like a strange breeze blowing through like one of they're like perpendicular to each other it's just it's all very strange and i just i don't know maybe i get caught up in the details but i'm like how did you end up like this like mentally sexually physically like how did all of this happen oh yeah i mean the mechanics alone of like being driven because they're in i mean they're in like a doctor's off like a proper doctor's office right it's not like another room in his home okay 
Yeah, I, be- I believe so. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it's a doctor's office. I think he's sitting on one of those, like, because she does the, like, um, not the, like, hit your knee thing, but she does, like, test one of his reflexes, and he says, like, is that bad? And she's like, no, it'd be bad if, like, you had reacted or something, some shit like that. Um, but this, you're right, this movie goes from, like, uh, she has, like... Zero to 60. <laughs> I see what you're <laughs> uh, she has like little to no interest and then she literally becomes like her character from uh batman where like there's that scene on the roof where every line is innuendo and they just keep going back and forth and it just gets like more and more obscene and like you just keep thinking it's gonna end like we both know that they know that they want to fuck each other but they just keep doing it like that's that's where this evolved and then we get them teleported as you said, um, to a California king bed, which is really good Rihanna promo here. And yeah. and then is this isn't this also the scene where um, here's another kind of like wrench in this chain? I think he's explaining to her with sweet and low packets. Yeah, he's like explaining to her the the mechanics of some sort of driving maneuver by like um, using two sweet and low packets as like tech decks on her thigh, which like I don't know anyone that has like individual sweet and low packets in their homes or are they in like a hotel is it a ho- hospital with a california king bed like does he just have them from when he went to that dinner with the president of nascar i mean <laughs> again i'm going to reveal something very personal about myself only to you and then to everybody who listens to this i do keep individual <laughs> sweet and low packets um can i ask it's a follow-up a... question yeah, about that of... sure do they are they ones that you like squirrel away from restaurants or did you like go on Amazon and buy like a hundred pack of them? No, I keep like a running I keep like a drawer of things I steal from restaurants that can range from like straws to sweet and low packets to like small ramekins that you might get in TGI Fridays. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean it's it's definitely kind of a kleptomania kind of thing um but yes i consistently have sweet and low packets and i typically keep at least two or three of them on my person when i leave um in case i ever get tea at a restaurant <laughs> i'm trying but to i have never used them i mean it's been a, it's been a minute since i've been on grinder um but i can't wait to see what the end of this sentence is gonna be <laughs> if you know, you, you spoke to my boyfriend, Andrew, a few episodes ago. He's a great guy. Love him to pieces. Um, if some, God forbid, something were to ever happen, he, you know, drives into a wall and we lose him under mysterious circumstances. I will keep those packets on me um, anytime I go to visit a new suitor because I now have a deep need to mansplain something with sweet and low packets using someone's thigh. Can I tell you where I thought that that tangent was going? Oh, a hundred percent. You had mentioned the sweet and low packets and you mentioned like mysterious circumstances with Andrew. And all I could think about was, and I'm so sorry, spoilers for Breaking Bad, but it's been forever at this point. Like that scene at the end of the series where, like Lydia is obsessed with stevia and she keeps using them and they like poison the stevia packets to poison her that Andrew would do it to you. Like that would be the way that he would get rid of you. If there were one of us that would kill the other one, it would definitely be him killing me. It would likely be through something like sweet and low packets. Yeah. He, 
I mean, listen, he talked about dead calm. He's got, he watched a child get murdered on screen. So he's got ice in his veins as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah, he's a monster. I think we get segued right into the like double date on a boat after this, which is probably a good, <laughs> roman- a ro- good romantic place for us to talk about now. Yes. It's a lot. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the whole thing. The whole thing is super strange. And essentially from like sweet and low thighs forward, Nicole Kidman loses her GD mind. Like, she is not a logical person for the rest of the movie. Like, when she gets a call from Cole, um, he's about to go into a race, but he's scared because it's a race and he doesn't want to die because now he's had this experience of, like, near death. And Cole calls her, and she's on the phone, and a senior doctor comes in and is like, um... Hi, Claire, we have a trauma. And she's like, not now, Cole's on the phone. And it's like, <laughs> oh, got it. Well, I'll tell this guy to like stop bleeding out and you take your time. It's just, it's funny because it's a woman who <clears throat> is pretty one dimensional, but like the one dimension that we do get from her is that she's a woman who cares about her job. And then like that goes right out the window. Like she's a woman with zero defining characteristics at this point that aren't Tom Cruise. But here's, here's the thing. I feel like that's poor writing. I feel like Nicole Kidman like absolutely crushes that. Oh, like, yeah. I'm not here to say that she's doing a poor job about that. I'm just here to say that, like, what she was handed is, um, like, a crime against her sex, I guess. She's, like, that strange person at a party, and this is what I respect, and I'm so happy to see that the roles that she's getting at this point in her career are so much better than what she was getting in the 90s, and especially the early 90s, because, like, you can hand that woman a piece of, like, flimsy paper and, like, come back five minutes later and there'll be like an origami swan sitting on the counter. And she's like, so where's the sweet and low? And you're like, Oh, okay. So I just thought it was incredible what she was able to do with the absolute absurdity on the double date, answering the phone when Cole was like, Hey, I'm sad and like nervous. And she had a trauma. Like she's just incredible. She, she does get rewarded kind of twofold if I'm judging in this movie, the first reward that I think that she gets is that iconic all white outfit that she wears to a NASCAR race. Well, I actually made a note about that because I'm fairly confident for at least 75% of the movie, she wears nothing darker than a shade of eggshell. Oh yeah. She's, I mean, she dabbles in like, she's wearing a hospital coat for one, which is like just textbook white but then she gets like some bone there's like a little ecru maybe um there's some Uh, at at one point a pale cream perhaps yes but this Uh, this outfit really takes the cake yeah um that one and the other moment that i feel like is just absolute perfection well to start um crazy pants mcgee tom cruise Um, does eventually go back on the racetrack. Um, And that's when he gets wrecked um, mildly for the first time by the guy driving the Hardy's vehicle. Um, I think his name was Russ. I want to confirm this. Um, Yeah, Russ Wheeler. Um, He actually comes in to fill in for Cole 
um, and then becomes his teammate. Oh, yeah, because then... is this before or after? I'm so sorry. Is this before or after, like, um, Rowdy asks Cole, like, to, to drive for him? Is this the person <clears throat> they get instead because he says he can't do it? Yes. Okay, great. So Russ um, fills in for Cole and then becomes his teammate and then becomes his rival. And on the racetrack, he wrecks um, Cole. So that Cole goes back, um, doesn't finish the race, goes back to the um, pit crew, has them change two tires, and then, like a normal human, leaves pit row as Russ is making his victory lap and T-bones the fuck out of him. It's a total stunt. It's the pettiest thing in this movie. And then, like, again, with absolutely, like, no sense in her character's brain left, like, Claire is waiting for him after, and she's like, let's go somewhere. You seem upset. Because, like, again, not to, like, reference Andrew too much, but Andrew's British, and I have, like, four different personalities. Um... The main one is, like, a really, like, angry Southern woman. Um, So Andrew has to deal with, like, you know, me having, like, a moment or, like, flipping out about something that's kind of trivial. But, like, never in my life have I driven a car, like, into another car as a means of, like, this is a good way for me to handle my anger. And, like, Andrew's practically a saint, but, like, I've had much smaller instances where he's like, okay, we need to pump the brakes here and, like, consider what we're doing. But Claire, when he drives this car into another car, she's like, it's okay, we'll get through it. So then what actually ends up pushing her over the edge and giving her what I think is her best moment in the entire movie is when they're in the car together and the cab driver that is stalling behind them um, taps the back of um, Cole's car And then Cole just, like, throws his car into reverse as hard as he can and, like, hits... It was very, um, like, fried green tomatoes. Like, I'm older and I've got better insurance than you moment. (laughs) Except it was all... Slams her car into that. Except it was only driven by, like, anger and testosterone and, like, a hatred of Hardee's. Um, And then they just, like, take off and the most iconic speech where Claire just says, let me out of the car, Cole, like five times. This was my, this was my ladybird moment because she, I thought the car was still driving. So when she opened the door, I was like, she's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> she gets a pink cast. Yeah. Um, yeah. She like opens up the door and that is eventually what stops Cole because a reasonable logical request from a woman isn't enough she has to put herself literally in mortal danger for him to do anything um and then she gives him the whole speech about you're scared you know what death looks like now and you may never have the courage to go out there which um i don't i don't particularly know how i feel about that message but i liked the moment for nicole sure you know fine (laughs) I feel like you have either a lot more feelings about this or absolutely no feelings about this. No, I'll expand on that a little because I was a little vague. I was just thinking, like, at least they gave her something to say that wasn't, like, about wanting to have sex with him. That was all oh, I yeah. was thinking. It was like, how how generous of them to give her a line in this movie that wasn't just sexual in nature. Or, like, oh, yeah. generic 
doctor speak, which I guess even this is kind of bordering on that. Well, what's really hilarious is at the end of that, like big speech where she talks about him having fear and him maybe not ever having the courage. She goes, thanks. You made me sound like a doctor again. And Um, I was like, Nicole, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. It also reminds me of my favorite piece of IMDb trivia about this movie, which is like a recurring theme on this podcast is that I am fascinated with like the skills that Nicole chooses to learn. Um, and doesn't learn. And at one point I was reading that it, said, that it said that she wanted to study neurosurgery for the part and the producers straight up told her it would be a waste of time. Like they were like, oh no, like this is, this will not be that deep. but i just love the concept of her showing up to set one day and like asking her pa like can you check me out like you know just a couple of books on neurosurgery and like robert duvall overhearing and just being like oh no honey like go go sit in your trailer like you'll just get to come out and wear this coat like it would actually be better for you to look at a manual on how to construct a car and you don't even have anything to say about cars in this movie yeah, they just gave her like, they just gave her like the weekly, like the Sunday ad for cars. And they're just, just look at some of these. And then just like doing her best, Nicole Kidman comes like out of the woodwork and she's like, damn the carburetor. And then like walks away and, you know, gets a Golden Globe nomination out of it. She got a Golden Globe for this? No, oh, God, no. But how wonderful would that be? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> So essentially, to move the plot forward, what what little plot there is to move forward, um, it takes more effort to push two packets of sweet and low up Nicole Kidman's thigh than it does to move this plot forward. Um, Rowdy, who got like way more screwed up in that original wreck. Um, has a blood vessel issue in his brain. I'm not going to go into the details of it because you don't need to know it. Um, But he asks Cole, because they are now friends, um, if he will drive for him um, for Daytona because the only way that there's going to be enough money to pay everyone off in his life for this failed season of NASCAR is if Cole drives the mellow yellow car, naturally. Um, So Cole is all torn and he's like, I don't know if I should because racing's dangerous and Rubin's racing and I don't like Rubin unless it's like with Nicole. Um, Decides that he's going to do it. And then there's this extremely intense scene where there's like it's very backlit you get a lot of like sepia tones coming in um when he discusses like whether he's going to do this with dr claire and she said that she'll walk in there but she won't stay and watch the race because she is a woman of logic um and not of emotion um meanwhile i think my favorite non-nicole kidman scene in the entire movie is Robert Duvall praying over a car. Yeah, that's actually the last note that I took in this movie because <laughs> as soon as I got to that point, I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done here. So essentially Robert Duvall, um, we we do need to go back and have a conversation about this race car driver that Robert Duvall used to coach that 
At first, he died of a heart attack? Yes. I think that's the first thing that they say is that he, it was like something that was like medically induced by the conditions of the race um, that like caused And for note, um, esteemed character actor John C. Riley um, is this man's son. In this film, John C. Riley has a vocabulary of approximately 10 words. So they discuss it, and John C. Riley's kind of sad, but he's also kind of like blank about the entire thing, which is your first red flag. Um, then later on, the topic is um, that he wasn't unconscious when he hit the wall. Like, he knew what was happening because he talked the entire way until his death. Yeah, Robert Duvall's like, he spoke to me the whole time. (laughs) Can can we stop this recording and go back and you only speak to me in that voice for the entire podcast? Because that was perfect. (laughs) It was, I did that really off the cuff. Thank you so much. <laughs> but I just, heard it, I just heard it back in my headphones and it like scared me a little. <laughs> he, he spoke to me the whole time. That was, um, that was incredible. I but was then, inspired by when you corrected my Rubens Racing. <laughs> Rubens Racing. Uh, <laughs> um, but then I, do we ever really get an answer as to what happened? The, the third kind of explanation that we get, which I think we're to believe is the real one, is they talk about how, like, the siding on the car wasn't, um, they changed it because it was, like, weighed less, but it was far less, like, um, fire Protective. resistant. Yeah, and then they talk about how the siding kind of ripped through, and essentially, like, I think they mentioned that the whole, like, cabin filled up with smoke at one point, amongst other things, and we get kind of, like, a much more graphic and perhaps more easily tied to Harry's culpability explanation than we've previously received. Yeah. So, I mean, it gets, it gets real fucking dark. Um, and then at the end, it turns out that Robert Duvall is more scared of Cole going out than Cole is. So cut to him praying over this car. Um, after fighting Cole on the car and telling him like, you're not going out there again. And then finds that there is, while he's praying over the car that there is an issue with the engine, um, that there's like metal in the oil. So they have to replace the entire engine. The engine comes out of one of the Hardy's cars um, from Cole's rival. Um, And then the last Daytona 500 happens because it happens twice a year. Um, and, you know, without getting too much into detail, um, Cole's big victory move is that he always goes to the outside and passes another car on the outside of the track. And he fooled his Hardy's competitor and passed him on the inside and got first place. And then we get to the end and Claire actually stayed and watched the entire race because in case we were led to believe that Nicole Kimmons' character was ever driven by logic, she is not. Um, which is only further proven in the fact that she wore a white pantsuit <laughs> to the Daytona 500 in the pit crew area. 
um, which is like constantly filled with grease. And I started getting anxiety because at the end when Cole pulls around, they like pull him out of the car and he's just covered in soot. And they lift him on top of the car and they're like, hooray, Cole. And like the whole time I'm thinking like, they are not going to put Nicole Kidman next to this man. Cause I couldn't remember if that happened. And then all of a sudden these like gross, gross people lift Nicole Kidman in her entire like white pantsuit and put him on, put her on the car with him. And then they make out and there's soot all over her face. And I'm like, I'm breathing heavily the entire time. It's insane because like, I saw that white outfit and I was like, oh, she's going to be like sitting on bleachers or like there's going to be like smoke and oil like all around. And then like she somehow escapes all of that. And then she somehow escapes like these people putting those same hands, the same like oily hands all over her to like hoist her up onto this car. Outfit still fine, but like her face is just destroyed yeah i mean she's a coal miner at this point i mean it is literally sissy spacek and coal miner's daughter (laughs) oh we should have talked about that what do we do you have any closing do you have any closing thoughts on this movie um i do have a couple of insider informations um (laughs) i thought you might little do people know an entire sub movie about racing was being filmed in nicole kidman's hair the entire time that's how much volume there was. Get out. That's not an insight. Get out. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was, that was total bullshit. Um, but I do want to have a quick conversation about how wonderful her hair was in this movie. It's good. I mean, again, another recurring theme on this podcast is kind of like the presence of Nicole's natural hair versus wigs and kind of when she made the switch and, and never looked back. And we are just right on the, the precipice of peak Nicole hair. Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, let's see. Do I have any other insights about this movie? I mean, it's all kind of bonkers. Like, it's bonkers from beginning to end, but, like, so is NASCAR. Um, it makes me sad that the main character wasn't, um, patterned after Dale Earnhardt. Um, he was patterned after patterned after some other guy that I don't care to talk about, but I do want to take a minute to say how important Dale Earnhardt was. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much that. I mean, it was it was bonkers. I do think though that if you go into this movie, um, because I have this like strange two sides of me, like one that grew up with like a redneck culture, and then one that is like completely embraced like gay camp as I've gotten older, there really is like so much in common. Um, if you are willing to just like kind of open up your perspective and see just like how ridiculous it is, um, throughout this entire movie and all of the things that they highlight. It's just, I mean, it's just kind of nuts. I think that's a good summary. I think that that, this is going to be the podcast episode that heals our nation. I think <laughs> that's all I'm, that's all I'm trying to do is just bring, <laughs> I think if you eliminate the Confederate flags and just look at it as like a very specific kind of drag, then days of thunder might just become your new favorite movie. <laughs> it's, it's full yeah. of kitsch though. You just reminded me, you just reminded me of that 
episode of Drag Race where they all get um, different TV show like items that they have to make drag out of, and April Carrion gets um, like a Duck Dynasty box. Yes, keep saying like "is crap, is crap," because <laughs> <laughs> she's just so mad because it's all just like camo print. But yeah, this is is this movie is drag. Um, and you know what? Sometimes drag provokes, and this movie provoked me a little. <laughs> but did it then provoke it me towards change? Is the question. I don't think it did but I think right now we just live in too divisive of a time for that change to occur we're gonna we're going to have to defeat the Nazis again and when we do and things get a little more back to like you know a manageable pH we'll come back together we'll watch it hopefully in person and I'll, I'll bring you I'll bring you a little bit closer to my side of the spectrum that sounds lovely um should we should we make this even more divisive by making you rank this movie now? Oh, 100%. Okay. Um, so I'm going to give you some categories. They're going to be one through fives. Five will be the highest. Um, you can justify these however you'd like. Feel free to get creative. Um, they can be okay. about Nicole or about the movie as a whole. Um, and you are in pursuit of the very prestigious Golden Compass Award. So knowing <laughs> that... Um, thank you. <laughs> Knowing that your first category is going to be wigs in this movie, one through five. Five. Wow, a hard five. Even though I'm, I mean, is she? It's it's her hair. Is is it her real hair? I need to get another look at it real quick because I just spent a couple minutes ago talking about how it's her hair, but I might be wrong. I mean, it's absurd. If it is her hair, then I'm gonna go for a, just a straight one. Oh, I love that this is going to be just a five or a one, depending on what I determine. Uh, that is, oh, it's for sure her real hair. Oh, then it's a one. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm so sorry to like completely talk you out of that, but it's for sure her real hair. No, it's fine. Uh, There's so many good Kidman wigs out there. I don't want to try to enter this into the Hall of Fame if it's not if it doesn't belong there. Yeah, it's definitely um very high on the nicole natural scale because like in a bmx bandit situation it's like i mean it's like childish how curly it is like it's just insane and this one is very voluminous but i think that like curl wise it's very manageable i don't know what i'm saying at this point um how do you feel how do you feel about the accents in this movie (sighs) i I'm going to give this a three. Okay. Um, because I feel like, you know how Mother got a cinema score of F? Yes. Um, but like ultimately that's almost a compliment because you have to work really hard to get an F cinema score. I feel mm-hmm. like for me to give this a one, it would have to like be trying for something very intentionally and like just be really shitty at it. Whereas I don't feel like they tried for an accent at all. Cause Tom Cruise sounded like Tom Cruise. Nicole Kidman sounded just like Nicole Kidman and Robert Duvall has the same Robert Duvall voice that he always uses. So yeah, I'm going to call it a three cause I don't think they really did anything. Um, great. Great. Uh, thank you for also bringing up 
the movie Mother on this podcast, which is something that I love to talk about. Uh, and I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> you should get bonus points. Anytime someone brings up Sacred Deer or Mother, I feel inclined to just give them bonus points. <laughs> um, all right. This is next one is the uh, patented Naomi Watts scale. So a higher score on this particular ranking would signify some sort of increased connection of Naomi Watts to this movie. And um, feel free to justify that in whatever means you'd like to. Oh, um, I would say, I, w- I want to think a little bit because I don't want to, sure. I don't want to just rule it out because right now I'm not feeling like there's much of a connection. So let me set the scene for you a little and maybe this will help and maybe it won't while you're thinking. Okay. Um, so relatively soon before this, Nicole and Naomi were in flirting together when she was kind of making her pivot from Australian kind of cinema into American cinema. So I think okay. they were on each other's radar. I don't necessarily think that Naomi Watts went out for this movie, so I don't think you can use that. Um do they talk about it now? Maybe not because of Tom Cruise. These are things that I would consider personally. Um, so just kind of connecting Naomi Watts to the movie. That's ultimately what we're trying to do here. Yeah, we want to know, like, does she have a VHS copy of it somewhere, like, in her storage unit? Like, we want to know, did she audition? We want to know, like, do they text um, GIFs of the movie back and forth to each other? Like, these are the things that the people demand. I am going to say, um, at the risk of being offensive, that I would give it a four. Okay. Um, that probably circa 2013 um, or 12, I can't remember the year, when Naomi Watts did her role as Diana. Um, Princess of Wales. Um, mm-hmm. She was discussing with Nicole Kidman on the award circuit. You know, I'm in, I'm in this movie, and I played Diana. Do you have something similar? And then, as just like a very like low key way of shading her, sent Naomi Watts a VHS of Days of Thunder and said, "I think they're similar plot points." Okay, that's insane because she. <laughs> I mean, Nicole Kidman played, like, Grace of Monaco, which I think is a much closer reference point, but I love the concept that she was like, what do I have in my in my canon that is the closest thing I could give my dear friend? Oh, it's Days of Thunder. And then she's like, oh, yes, car accidents, and then just sends her Days of Thunder. Yeah, I just like the concept that, like, being royalty is less intrinsically connected to that movie than car accidents, which is a semi-valid argument. Isn't it? All right. It's a four. Great. Um, moving right along. Approachability. How how likely are you to walk up and start a conversation with Dr. Claire Lewicki at like a small social gathering or um, like a crowded subway train? Um, depends on if I was able to find sweet and lows um, on my own. Um, okay, probably, um, honestly, probably a two. Um because I get I get really nervous about people that work in the STEM field. So <laughs> that was a very I, honest and vulnerable answer. I, I, I don't. I, 
I don't I feel like I'd have much to come. I don't feel like I would have much to contribute, but I mean, if we're talking about Dr. Claire um, specifically, I don't think she would either. So maybe higher, but I'm going to go with a two. Two. Um, okay. How suppressive do you think that the church of Scientology feels this movie is as far as like how much it violates their practices and teachings? Who? Um, let me, let me run through the, let me run through the movie again. Honestly, do you want to know exactly what I'm doing right now? If you hear listener or Sam, um, if you hear slight typing in the background, I'm looking up basic tenets of Scientology. Um, <laughs> cause I, yeah. cause I try to stay away from it cause I'm nervous and I feel like if I get too close to Leah Remini, they're also going to come for me. There's, I've said this before on the podcast, but there's the Scientology Center, like without exaggeration, like a thousand feet from the apartment that I'm currently sitting in. So they're, I mean, they're coming already. Oh, that's not good. Um, I mean, I would, I would say that they're probably not going to be too pleased about the movie in its entirety. I agree. Um, I think just the simple act that Nicole and Tom are sharing a screen, like values aside, I think that's already like very stressful for them. Oh yeah, I think it's I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be real tough. There's also this whole thing, and again, I'm just on a Wikipedia page here, but like the handling of psychosis, and like there's a lot of psychosis going on in this movie, and without even reading the little section that comes after that, I can tell you that they probably mishandled it. Um, I think that might give you a, a high score. Are you thinking like a so yeah? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I I was just going off of my basic feelings. I'm gonna give it a five. Beautiful. Um, I think you're right. I think honestly, like if all three of the Nicole Tom movies don't get fives, then I think that we're doing something wrong. Um, <laughs> and then this is this last one is just overall level of iconicness as it pertains to Nicole's career. Unfortunately, like a two. Okay. Um, I wish that, and it's of no fault of her own. I wish that she would have had more to work with. Um, the film itself is iconic, but I don't think it's that iconic in terms of Nicole's career. All right. Um, that gives you a, a pretty respectable 17 out of 30. I will say as far as your relationship is concerned, dead calm got a 15. So you did beat Andrew. So that's something nice for you. That's how it always should be. And it also puts you on par. It puts you on par with some pretty respectable Nicole Kidman movies and also a couple of like not so respectable movies. Um, it puts you on par with The Interpreter, which I think I've gone on record many times as saying is like the peak example of like mid-2000s, not great Nicole flicks. Um, but I feel I feel pretty good about this. If for no other reason than you beat Andrew and I enjoy causing drama in other people's relationships. Oh, I will be calling him directly after this to let him know <laughs> as well. Um, here, I have one last chance for you to kind of upstage him if you're, if you're ready. <clears throat> of course. Okay, so as as part of our final act, um, the only real like game that I have for you, uh, in lieu of talking about Big Little Lies myself um, or doing an episode for it, uh, I've been asking all of the guests to kind of explain it to me. Um, so I'm going to give you a full 60 seconds, and if you don't mind, we're just going to try and cram in as many of the plot points into that 60 seconds as possible. Sure. Cool. Um, whenever you're ready... Go ahead and go, and then I'll start the timer then. Okay, have you seen The Babysitter's Club? 
Yes. Or read any of the books. Yes. Um, so I would say that Reese Witherspoon is like Christy. And then you have Celeste as like Claudia. And then Marianne, I would say, is more of like um, Jane because like she keeps books and she's secretary of the club. And then um, Anastasia, also known as Stacy, um, is probably Renata. And then at the end, you have Dawn who is Bonnie, but instead of, you know, like it being like standard plots of like the babysitter's club, like it's in the future and Claudia has like a super shitty husband. And then one day Christy's like, we're going to take care of this, but it's actually Dawn that like comes up out of like fucking nowhere and like takes her honorary member card and like drop kicks him down a staircase. And I don't even think I need the rest of my time. And that was that's time right there anyway um oh. this is this is truly unprecedented what you've done here which is an extended metaphor using another iconic property of sisterhood um this is i'm truly speechless this is really <laughs> this is this is stupefying you normally i would like read people for leaving out uh, details such as the city of Monterey, California, or the production of Avenue Q. But honestly, this is... I feel like it's all built up. This is beautiful. I can't believe what you've done here. <laughs> this is a gorgeous metaphor that you gave us. Thank you. Wow. I was like, he's going to do that, and then he's going to switch halfway through. But you just, I mean, you just projected those women into the future. God, that was good. Okay. Uh, honestly, if, if it's ultimately just like a low-key um, love letter to Don Schaefer, but here we are. I'm so glad that I gave you a platform. To <laughs> <laughs> this, podcast, this episode has been a chance to heal the nation and for you to like soapbox about the Babysitter's Club. I mean, ultimately, I'm so thankful that you invited me on. Um, my career, or the one that I'm trying to put together, is all about the written word. But when you, or anyone really, allows me to speak freely, I'm kind of a shit show. Um, <laughs> so I'm just happy that we made it to the end and that you didn't say, oh, it's broken, and just like hang up on me. So, No, I could never. Um you mentioned your blossoming career in the written word. Can you tell people where we can find you as we wrap this up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you like television things, you can read some TV stuff on USA Today or Entertainment Weekly. Um, if you like things that are a little more culturally in-depth, you can read my stuff at Esquire. Or if you like slight misguided political ramblings and jokes that are self-deprecating, you can find me on Twitter at Justin Kirkland 4. Um, as always, you can find this podcast on Twitter as well at The Kid Manifesto. Um, you can find me directly at Mr. Sam Herbst. Um, I haven't said this in a while, but if you want to DM the person that has at Sam Herbst and tell him to release his handle, that would be really cool. Um, another cool thing would be to rate and subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Um, Justin, is there something from this movie or from Nicole's canon that you would like this episode to be played out to not to put you on the spot. Oh, um, I would, oh gosh, I don't, 
I don't know. I feel like there's something and I'm just going to like squander this opportunity. Um, I mean, if you can't think of something, I'm going to play a song from Burlesque just because you mentioned you and your dad performing it. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> I think that ultimately, unless you can find... Yeah, I want, I want burlesque. I just want burlesque and we'll call it a day. Dedicate this to Wendell because otherwise I would have never, ever, ever watched this movie. Oh, thank you, Wendell. Um, thank you, Justin, for doing this uh, and enjoy the dulcet tones of Christina Aguilera and Cher. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun place to end. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Show a little more, show a little less, add a little smoke, welcome to burlesque, everything you dream of, but never can possess, nothing's what it seems, welcome to burlesque.